Okay, good morning. How is everybody? Yeah, pretty good. Okay, I'll let you find your seat. Welcome this morning. Those of you that are worshiping with us online, good to have you. Guys, do you know that we had 706 people worship with us last Sunday for Easter Sunday? Is that incredible? So those of you that are newer, newer to our community because of that, we're just so grateful that you're here and we welcome you. It's so good to have you. Uh, we are starting, you know, Easter Tide. Easter is not just a one-off event in the church, but Easter is actually a season. We learn to live into the resurrection, and in the church it's called Easter Tide. It's a season. And so during the next seven weeks or so, we decided that uh, one of the ways we would like to learn how to live into the resurrection together as a community is by tackling the prayer that Jesus gave us, uh, affectionately known as the Lord's prayer. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to take each line of the Lord's prayer and break it down and show how it's a window into the kingdom and how it also shapes kingdom life for us. Uh, One book that I have found very helpful uh, in thinking about the Lord's prayer is a book by N.T. Wright, one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world. About 25 years or so ago, he wrote this book called The Lord and His Prayer, which is a wonderful meditation on the Lord's prayer that does a fantastic job Also setting the Lord's Prayer inside of the overall mission of Jesus and the message of Jesus. And so if you want a really readable uh, but also robust study on the Lord's Prayer, we've got a bunch of copies of this out in the lobby. Uh, I think they're like 15 bucks or so on Amazon. We're selling them for eight. So you could head out to the lobby after the service and grab one of these and you can meditate through the Lord's Prayer as we go through this series over the next seven weeks or so. And if we sell out, it's one click, drop ship. Just go get one for yourself, you know? Okay, do you remember when you first learned how to pray? Remember how that started for you? For me, I was probably six or seven or eight or so years old, and I think my mom, my mom was was and is a great woman of prayer, and I think that she was very eager to see her kids, her oldest son in particular, I'm the oldest in my family, uh, really grab hold of a life of prayer. And so uh, her strategy for doing that was by putting the Word of God in a place where she knew that the Word would have a captive audience for at least 10 minutes or so a day, and that was the back of the toilet seat. And it worked. And so while I was doing, I know TMI, right? But while I was doing my thing, you know, when I was seven or eight years old, I would read the scriptures, and that always gave, uh, it gave rise to prayer, you know? that I would be inside the Psalms or inside the Gospels or whatever. And then I kind of had my list of people that I was praying for. I prayed for family members. Then I prayed for friends. I prayed for people to come to know Jesus. I remember for a very long time, I prayed every day for Michael Jordan, that Michael Jordan would become a Christian. And I think we're still waiting on the answer to that prayer. We'll see. But prayer for me, when I was seven or eight years old, it was like a thing that you did kind of at a discreet moment of the day. So in the morning, kind of center yourself, say some prayers, and then you go on with your day. But now I'm 30 some odd years removed from that moment. And I think what I've learned about prayer, the role that prayer has come to take a play in my own life, is that it's less a discreet thing that happens in my day, although it certainly is that. And it's more like the heartbeat now of my whole life of faith. Paul has this great line in 1 Thessalonians where he says, pray without, can you finish it? Pray without ceasing. And when you walk with Jesus, one of the things that starts happening is that prayer, uh, prayer ceases to become just this little kind of moment 
and it starts sort of saturating your being, and it becomes the kind of energy that drives your life along. It becomes the kind of propulsion for a life of discipleship. And that, I think, is also reflected in the great teaching that Jesus gives us on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. You might remember that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' uh, just comprehensive teaching on what life in the kingdom really looks like. Matthew 6, 7, and 8. He talks about a wide variety of things. This is what the new ethos of the kingdom looks like. A resurrected people looks like this, the Sermon on the Mount. But you know what teaching is right smack in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount? It's Jesus' teaching on prayer. And I think that says something to us. I think it says to us that we cannot live the life of resurrection. We cannot live the life of the kingdom unless prayer is somehow deeply seated in who we are. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to unpack this prayer that Jesus gave us to show how it's a window into the kingdom and, how, and show how also it'll reframe our own prayer life if we'll surrender to what the movements of this prayer really are. So Lord Jesus, we lift up our hearts to you in this moment. And we thank you for your goodness. And we thank you for your love. And we thank you that you're here that you are present, that you are a teacher, that you are a guide, our comforter, our counselor. You're with us, and we're so grateful. We thank you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit means that we can live a new life with you. And so this morning, we're asking that the new life of the kingdom would grip us, that you would surprise us, that you would help us, that you would teach us your ways. We're not just in it to get a ticket to heaven, but we're in this that you would show us the ways of the kingdom. As the psalmist said, teach us your ways that we may walk in your paths. Guide us in your truth and lead us for your God, our Savior, and our hope is in you all day long. And that's what we're praying this morning. We ask that you would teach us and help us and show us how to live more deeply in the kingdom of God. Grant that the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full, but when you pray, go into your room, Jesus says, and close the door. And pray to your Father who is unseen, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And also, he says, when you pray. So Jesus is like bracketing out things here that we shouldn't do when we're praying. When you pray, he says, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. This then, Jesus says, is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For Jesus says, if... You forgive other people when they sin against you. Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. So Jesus begins his teaching on prayer by bracketing out 
some things that we should not do in prayer. One thing he says that we should not do in prayer is we should not pray to try to impress others. Don't be like the hypocrites, he says, standing on the street corners, praying out loud with bombastic large prayers to try to impress other people. He says, if you do that, probably people will be impressed with you. And if that is the case, then you will have received your reward, but you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven. So you can't pray in that way. Don't pray in that hypocritical way. Prayer is about an interaction between us and the living God, not really an interaction between us and other people. But if you do it as an interaction with other people, you're going to get the reward, but you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven. So don't pray in the first place to impress people, he says. But in the second place, also, don't be like the pagans, okay? babbling on and on in prayer, they think that they're going to be heard because of the abundance of their words. And many of us do this as well. In the ancient world, you would babble on like the pagans because you were hoping that if you just, you know, they had a pantheon of deities, right? It wasn't just one God, but it was a whole collection of gods. And so if you prayed enough prayers in the presence of deity, if you address this God and that God and this God and that God, maybe if one of those gods was having a good day, that God would answer you, right? So you just babble on and on. But even in our modern time, we do this, don't we? We just think that if we wear God out with the sheer volume of our language, that God will go, okay, just to get you off my back, fine, have the thing, whatever it is. And Jesus is like, come on, you don't have to do it like that. You don't have to try to wear God out with the abundance of of your words, your father knows what you need even before you ask him. So you're not bringing new information into the presence of God, you know, when you're coming into prayer. So don't pray like the hypocrites and also don't pray to like wear God out. But then Jesus says, and I love this, he says, this then is how you should pray. This is how you should pray, which is fascinating. When I think about the way that we instruct people to pray kind of in our modern time, One of the things that we often tell people when they're new believers or just young kids, you know, just getting started as we go, okay, you know, if you're going to have a prayer time, what you really need to do is you need to find a place and get quiet, center yourself down, and then you just need to pray whatever comes to your heart. Just pray whatever is in your heart to pray to the Lord, which sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Really pious nice sounding advice. The only problem is when you try it, you realize how much insanity and triviality is in your soul. And then you're frustrated because you can't get anywhere when you pray, you know, so you get real quiet in the presence of God. It's early in the morning, maybe the Monday after Easter or something, you know, you're really inspired by the resurrection, and so you decide to pray a little bit, and you get real quiet, and somebody told you that you just need to pray whatever is in your mind, whatever is in your heart, and so you get silent. And the first thing that comes to your mind is, God in heaven, why did I eat seven Cadbury cream eggs last night? Right? Or like, what was Aaron Rodgers doing hosting Jeopardy all week long? Like, shouldn't he be getting ready for the NFL season? Maybe there's a reason that we lost in the NFC Championship game last year, right? And then we wonder, like, why we can't get anywhere in prayer. Jesus is smarter (laughs) than that. He doesn't just kind of throw us into the void and go, hey, baby, just say whatever comes to your 
mind that he gives us something. I love the interaction of Jesus and his disciples in Luke chapter 11. The scripture says that one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. We have to be taught how to do this. Teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say. Don't you love that? Like Jesus doesn't just throw us into this void of subjectivity and go, hey, figure it out or say whatever comes to your heart. He doesn't do that. What Jesus does is he puts words on our lips. Deep words, thoughtful words, careful words, well-chosen words, sacred words. And he says that when you pray, do it like this. Follow this pattern. Follow this order. Follow this template because as you do it, it's going to form something in you. So what I want to suggest to you this morning as we get started is that the words that we use in prayer are crucial because those words form three things. One, they form a picture of who God is, a picture of who God is. Number two, they form a picture of who we are. And number three, they form a picture of what's really going on in the world. The words form a picture of who God is, who we are, and what's really going on in the world. And so if that is the case, if the words of the Lord's Prayer are crucial because they form our imagination, they form our spirit, then the first words of this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, must, I think, be the most crucial words of all. So in English, let's just go ahead and take them one at a time. The first word of the Lord's Prayer is the word our. Don't you love that? It isn't my, it's not mine, and it's not I. There are no first person singulars in the Lord's Prayer. But when we step into the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, instantly we are stepping into the great communion of saints in heaven and On earth, Jesus won't let us get away with any kind of individualism in the church. But what he does is he throws us right into the great communion of saints, the company of those who also have faith in Jesus. First word of the Lord's Prayer, in English anyway, is our, our. We're calling on God together. And when I think about my own experience of faith, it has been the church that's taught me how to pray. I didn't just like invent this on my own, but the church gave me the pattern of prayer, the pattern of understanding what it means to call on God as Father. I remember when I was a kid growing up in the church up in Wisconsin, my parents, that church was this incredible church of prayer. And every Sunday night, one of the elders of our church hosted a prayer meeting at their house. And so all the elders and a bunch of the leaders in the church would gather together to pray. And the kids, all of my peers, they would go play outside on the playground. They'd go to the park nearby, play football, whatever. And you know what my parents did? They wouldn't let me play outside. Yank me back inside. You're going to sit in this prayer meeting. Okay. Now I grew up Pentecostal charismatic. So that means that a prayer meeting is no small matter. And they're like three hours long. We'd be sitting there in the presence of God together. I just like half the time would be like dying inside. Lord, why do you hate me? (laughs) make me pray like this. It was good for me because you know what it taught me? The cadences of prayer, the rhythm 
of prayer, the feel of prayer, what happens when the people of God are in the presence of God together. How do we call upon God regarding the great issues of our day? How do we call upon God for one another's lives? What does it look like to get down on our knees and to bow our heads before the Lord and cry out to God in prayer? What it does is those prayer meetings week after week after week, they dance to the rhythm of prayer into my soul. And from that age, I learned that prayer is never just a matter of I, but it's always a matter of we. It's us together. It's our. And even when we are praying privately and individually, we're always still praying inside the great communion of saints in heaven and on earth. You might remember in the book of Revelation, that great scene in Revelation 4 and 5, when all of the multitudes of holy ones in the heavenlies are worshiping the Lord. Whenever we pray, we're praying in the company of those people. We're praying inside of the great cloud of witnesses. And this, by the way, is given to us in our baptism. What these kids did this morning, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says that we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form what? One body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. When we come into prayer, we are coming into the communion of saints in heaven and on earth together that are calling on God. First word of the Lord's prayer is not I and not my, but it's what? Our. It's our. We pray together unto God. Second word of the Lord's Prayer in English is Father. Our Father. Isn't that significant? That when we call upon God together, we don't call upon God as the great almighty power out there rattling around in the cosmos, right? We don't call upon Him as the absolute ground of being We don't call upon him as the holy other. We don't call upon him as any of those things. In fact, that Jesus tells us to call on God as Father represents even a shift in terms of the biblical witness. In the Old Testament, they had moments of referring to God as Father, and this metaphor is certainly there. But in the Gospels, nearly 150 times, Jesus refers to the God of the Old Testament as his Father. And do you know that when Jesus prays in the New Testament, he only addresses God as Father. He calls upon God as his Father. God, for us, according to Jesus, is Dad. And I know that that can be a difficult concept for many of us to swallow. The longer I'm a pastor, the longer I'm in the church, the more I think I understand that so much of the damage that takes place in our lives takes place because of bad parental figures in our lives or just more simply at bad dads. And so calling on God as father can be a really difficult thing. But I think that what we have to do is I think that we have to ground our understanding of God as father in the relationship that Jesus has with the one he calls father. In other words, what we don't do is we don't take our warped experiences of human fatherhood and then project them up on God. But what we do is we peer into the relationship that Jesus has with his Father and we draw our understanding of what our relationship with God ought to be based on how Jesus had a relationship with God. Does that make sense? Jesus redefines fatherhood for us. In the great moment of Jesus that marked the beginning of his ministry, Matthew chapter 3, the scripture says that as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am. And do you realize, brothers and sisters, that this is before Jesus has done anything amazing? The voice from heaven doesn't resound over Jesus as a reward for his good behavior. It's the absolute ground of Jesus' existence. And in the same way, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, is the absolute ground of our existence. Before we ever do anything good for God, and regardless of any bad thing we've ever done, still in Christ Jesus, the shout of the Father resounds over our lives. This is my son. This is my daughter, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. It's unshakable. It's who God is. He loves us this way, not because of anything inside of us, but because this is just who he is. In his very being, I remember when all of my kids were born, my four kids, Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam, with each one of them, I had a moment where I remember holding them in my arms for the first time and thinking to them, thinking about them, I have known you for eight seconds and I would do anything for you. I'm absolutely committed to you, absolutely committed to your good, absolutely committed to your flourishing. I would lay down on the train tracks for you. I would take a grenade for you. Bruno Mars is showing up in the church here this morning. (laughs) We got to, you know, stay relevant. Pop culture references every once in a while, right? I would do anything for you. That, That is the essence of fatherhood, is that absolute commitment to your good. St. Thomas Aquinas said that to love is to will the good of the other and to will it absolutely. And do you know... That's what God's fatherhood is for us. Do you know that God has never intended for your life or for my life anything less than or anything other than our absolute good at every moment of our lives? So when we call on God, we're not just offering up to him reflections on why we ate too many Cadbury cream eggs the day before, but we're calling on together. We're calling on our who? Father, and then the last little segment of that first line, our Father who art, what? In heaven, right? Our Father who art in heaven. Now, this is a tricky phrase for us because when we think of heaven, what do we think of? Right? Up or after, right? And when all of this is done, you know, the earth is rolled up like a scroll or whatever it is. We'll go to be in heaven or whatever one day out there or heaven is up there somewhere. So then for us, when we call on God together as father and we put him in the heaven, in our mind, where are we putting God? Up there or out there somewhere. What it does is it effectively removes God from our moment-by-moment existence. This is one of the places where our English translations kind of mess up a little bit what's happening in the Greek. In the Greek, in heaven here is entois uranois, which isn't one heaven, but in Greek, if you wanted to translate it as literally as possible, it wouldn't be in heaven, but it would be what? In the heavens. The great theologian of the 20th century and philosopher Dallas Willard said, and he taught this so beautifully, 
that in the Hebrew mind, the heavens were not just something up there, but the heavens included the very atmosphere surrounding our bodies. So that when we call upon our Father in heaven, we're not calling upon a God who's up there or out there in the future somewhere, but we're calling on a God who's where? All around us all the time. As Paul said in Acts 17 and verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being that we exist inside the fathering love of God, our Father in heaven. So when we take this phrase together, the cumulative impact of it is that it creates a Christian vision of reality. You could say it this way, that the cornerstone of a Christian vision of reality is that there is a people calling together on a God who looks on them with love is absolutely committed to their good and is closer to them than their very skin. Brothers and sisters, that's our God. We are the people together who call on a God who looks on us with love, who is committed to us, absolutely committed to our good and is closer to us than our very skin. Does that reshape a little bit how you think about prayer? For so many of us, prayer takes on many different Forms, and I think in appropriate forms, based on an inappropriate picture of what's happening. There are three things I think that sometimes we do that are different than the Christian vision of prayer. One thing that we turn prayer into is we often turn prayer into pure introspection, right? So what we do is we get in the prayer closet and what we assume is that prayer is this time of just kind of going over, taking inventory with what's going on in our own soul, meditating on what's happening Kind of in the inner life here, we turn prayer into pure introspection. And in that way, our connection with God tends to be lost. Or for many of us, what we do, if we don't do pure introspection, what we do when we come into prayer is we turn prayer into an exercise in pure resignation. That what we do is we go, you know, the Lord is going to do what the Lord is going to do regardless of any contribution that I make to the process. And so what I do is I'm just going to surrender. You know, I just resign myself to the fact that God's got an agenda. God's got a plan. He's got it all worked out. And so what I'm going to do is just kind of yield to that and surrender to that pure introspection, pure resignation. But if it's not those things for us, sometimes I think the way that we treat prayer and think about prayer is that it's a little bit like some kind of heavenly wheel of fortune. You know, you just really want the big money. You get out there and you spin that thing, right? And you're just hoping, come on, the trip to Hawaii, the trip to Hawaii, the trip to Hawaii. That's what I really want. And then it goes tick, 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 bankrupt. No. You lose it all in prayer. That's, I mean, for many of us, that's what it feels like with prayer, doesn't it? It's you're taking the things that you so desperately want and you so desperately need and it's just this sort of crapshoes, you're just kind of hurling them up in the sky or something, just hoping that an angel is going to come by and grab that request of yours and take it this way that we, but I don't think that that's the Christian way of thinking about prayer. I think the Christian way of thinking about prayer is that we're entering into the good intention of God, that we're calling upon God, that we're inviting him to do what he's determined ahead of time to do, what he wills to do. I think about just recently, I was visiting, uh, Jeff is here this morning, Jeff Cowell is here this morning, and I was visiting with Jeff and Darian and Jeff's wife, Jeff uh, 
Jeff was the head of our life safety team for a long time here at New Life Church. Just a good man of God. And I was visiting with him and his wife, Darian, a couple weeks ago. And Darian's got some health challenges that she's dealing with. And, and so I went over there just to visit with them for a little bit and also to pray. And so we spent some time talking and catching up with one another. And I spent some time listening to what's going on and getting the lay of the land. And then Jeff and I meandered over to where Darian was sitting. And we laid hands on her and we began to pray. And we said, Father, we just thank you that your presence is already here. It is right here. It is right now. And we thank you that you're moving upon dairy. And we thank you that the creed is correct when it says, Holy Spirit, that you are the Lord and the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have been raised up beyond death, never to see decay, and that your resurrection life is here and it is now and it is moving. We thank you for that. We thank you that wisdom from God is being given even now to know the kinds of decisions that need to be made. We thank you for that. We thank you that Darian's life is hidden with Christ in God. We thank you that she's tucked safely in the kingdom. We thank you that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck her from your hand. We thank you that nothing can separate her from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we're pleading with you for healing. We're pleading with you for grace. We're pleading with you for a flourishing life, length of days and years of life and peace will you add. And we're asking all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It wasn't pure introspection and it certainly was not just resignation to whatever God was going to do and it wasn't heavenly wheel of fortune. Do you know what it really is? Where prayer functions at its best is when it becomes a partnership and entering into the good will of God. Think about what Jesus said over and over and over again in his ministry. I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. That's prayer. Prayer is understanding that at all times what God is doing is he's opening blind eyes and unstopping deaf ears and he's making the mute tongues sing. What God is doing is he's liberating the captives. What God is doing is he's drawing people into the kingdom. What God is doing is he's giving encouragement to people, strengthening people. What God is doing is he's breaking systems and structures of injustice and oppression. What God is doing is all of these things. So what we do is we open our eyes to the good work of God and then we enter into it with our prayers. Are you with me? this morning. Our Father in heaven is saying big things right out of the gate. Think about the way that the scripture talks then about the posture of God towards us when we pray. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 16. He said, very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you. Think about it. Jesus isn't like, hey, listen, you know, prayer is pretty hit or miss. But if you get better at this over time, you're going to hit more than you miss. No, no, he doesn't say that. He assumes that there is this kind of partnership that takes place between God and his people, whereby my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name, but ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Or what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter four, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin, verse 16. So let us then approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence, so that we may receive and find to help us in our time of need. So Jesus says, look, 
The Father wants to give you whatever you ask in my name. And the writer of Hebrews says, the Son sympathizes with your weaknesses and he's receiving you when you pray to him. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Think about it. That the Father is eager to give good gifts to you. And the Son is welcoming and receiving you. And the Spirit is groaning along with you and inside of you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in your corner working with you as you pray. We're not trying to cajole God into doing things that He's not willing to do. Saying, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth, just like it's done in heaven. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit go, you better believe we're going to do that. It's a partnership between us and God. And Paul says that when we pray, it's the Spirit himself who's interceding inside of us with wordless Groans, which takes me to the last thing that I want to say to you this morning as we reflect on this line, our Father in heaven. Sometimes the whole thing when we pray can feel a little unreal almost. Like we're doing this thing with God and I listened to the preacher on Sunday and he painted this beautiful picture of prayer, but now I'm here in my prayer closet and nothing seems to really be happening The heavens aren't opening. The angels aren't singing. I'm not experiencing all of these things. What is going on? And do you know that saints down through the ages have wrestled with this experience of feeling like not really anything is happening when they're praying? C.S. Lewis gave voice to it in one of his poems. I don't know if you know this, but he was a heck of a good poet. And he has this beautiful poem on prayer. And he says this, listen up. He says, Master, they say that When I seem to be in speech with you, since you make no replies, it's all a dream, one talker aping two. And they are half right, but not as they imagine, but rather I seek in myself the things I meant to say, and lo, the wells are dry. Have you ever been there? You come to God in prayer, and you are scraping the bottom of your soul. You can't find the words. Sometimes the ache and the agony is so deep for you that you cannot give voice, you cannot give expression to what's going on in you. And he says, "Seek, I seek in myself the things I meant to say, and lo, the wells are dry. And then, seeing me empty, you forsake the listener's role, and through my dead lips breathe, and into utterance awake the thoughts I never knew. And thus... You neither need reply nor can. Thus, while we seem two talking, thou art one forever, and I no dreamer but thy dream. (laughs) Paul maybe put it best when he said that the hope of glory is this, Christ in you. That what happens when we come to prayer is it's not just us trying to generate a bunch of energy and give it to God, but because we've been made new 
in Christ Jesus by the Spirit of God. What happens is the very one who knows how to pray better than any human being has ever prayed before, Jesus the Lord, what he does is if we surrender to him, he wakes up in us. And he starts praying to the Father in us. That, by the way, is the whole point of what happens when we come to communion. Is we're not just remembering a moment when somebody did something amazing. But what's happening is the very life of Christ is getting knit into us again. Christ Jesus is waking up in us. And he's putting on our dead lips utterances that we never even thought to pray. as we surrender to him. And so I'd say that the reason that we can pray at all is because God in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, God is praying in us. Can the church say amen to that this morning? Can we stand and now prepare our hearts for communion? Take your elements in your hands here. Oh, Jesus. Only by your grace, only by your mercy, Only because of you can we do this at all. And so we come. For when you teach us to pray, our Father in heaven, you're teaching us how to pray to your God. And you begin to pray to your God inside of us. And so now, here, we surrender to you. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, together, we take your words on our lips and we pray. Say it with me, church, this morning. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we remember that on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it. Can we break it together, family? And he said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body. It is broken for you. Do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me. Can we take the bread on our lips this morning? Let's partake together. Your life in us, Lord Jesus. And we claim it and receive it. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So, Lord Jesus, here and now, we say, pour out your life in us. Make us once again citizens of the kingdom. May your glory and your strength be operative in us. Grant it, we ask, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's take the cup together, family. And let's respond now in worship with this song.
Stretch out your hands. Receive this benediction as you go. Thank you, Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything this morning, we would love to pray for you and with you. You are loved in New Life East. Go in God's grace and mercy and peace. We will see you next week.